Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Francis Moore-LePay. And if I may call you Frankie? Please. Uh, who's author of what we'll talk about today is mostly Daring Democracy, your most recent book. But I hope everyone recognizes your name from Diet for a Small Planet, especially for the 50th anniversary edition. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to share a little bit of your bio, just the beginning of it, because then I'm going to transition into how what this means to me to talk to you. And for the listeners, I asked her beforehand, is it okay if I share how much your book has meant to me? And she goes, everyone does it. It's almost impossible not to. Please. And All right. Francis Moore LePay, I'm reading now. It was born in Pendleton, Oregon. She was a 26-year-old trusting her common sense when she began the research that led to the publication of Diet for a Small Planet in 1971, a book which sold over 3 million copies and changed forever the way people think about food. Her little book showed that human practices, not natural disasters, cause worldwide hunger. Food scarcity results when grain, rich in nutrients and capable of supporting vast populations, is fed to livestock to produce meat, which yields only a fraction of those nutrients. And it's actually not that far of a jump from there to uh, during democracy. Well, in time, it was a fair amount. Now, I have to share what your book meant to me. And I'm going to start from back then. I was born in 1971 and the book came out. And I grew up believing if I didn't eat meat, I would die. And I never <laughs> questioned it. And I just figured that's the way it is. And the book was just lying around the house. I don't know. It was my parents belonged or helped form a food co-op. And so I guess it would be natural that it's lying around. And I read it and I thought, oh, I don't, ha- it's not necessary for life. That was high school. It wasn't until sophomore year in college that I had the guts to completely stop eating meat. And for a while, there was a lot of dairy and eggs, but then that tapered off after a while too. And now I didn't really think much about it because the last meat I ate was 1990. And I don't really, I haven't thought much about it. I just don't eat it. But a little while ago, I've been much more active on the environment starting maybe 10 years ago. And there were some TV people talking to me about doing a show. And they said, we need you to do a bio of yourself. Like, what? why are you so passionate about this? What's going on? And I thought food was my access to the environment. What was my access to food? And I had to go backward because I'd since stopped eating meat. I stopped eating hydrogenated oil and corn syrup and packaged food. And I traced it back and I was like, it was diet for a small planet. That's what got me started in my food habits. And my food habits led to all the environmental things. And so I did a video talking about this going back like that. And I really, it would be, I don't think there's anything before that that traced it, except that my parents would shop at the co-op. And then that kind of lingered with me for, this was maybe a year ago. And then I started seeing all these things about the 50th anniversary book coming out. I thought, I could talk to her. And now to me, you're like, I don't know what you say, like a patron saint or something like that. And just something that someone who changed my life inadvertently, not directly. I didn't meet you face to face until now. And I thought I could talk to her and just, if all I got to do is just show her gratitude of what she's done for my life. And then anyone go online and you'll see videos and everyone's like, gratitude to Francis Moore to Frankie because of what she's done. And it's you're one of these people that I feel like the number of people you've influenced and the magnitude of that influence is, I hope I haven't, I suspect you get a lot of this. People must tell us. <laughs> Josh, I can tell you, you can never get too much of it. <laughs> I'm, I think other human beings are like me in that regard. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's really for a while. I would focus a lot on like, how do I get the right nutrients and, and so forth? But eventually it just became easy. And I just eat a lot of vegetables and, and I go to the farmer's market and people have listened to a lot of my podcasts know I love my highlight of the summer is, and I've missed it the past two years because of the pandemic, but I, I belong to a CSA. So I get I, every Tuesday, I go and pick up my vegetables from the drop off point. But Labor Day weekend, the farm hosts everyone to come visit. And so thousands of people, come to the farm and they set up a tent and everyone brings, it's a potluck. And, but I don't eat for like a day before going because you can also (laughs) just take the plants right out of the ground and their soil and how they do it is it's, this works every time someone comes over, I give them a carrot from the CSA and they say, they take a bite and they go, I remember that taste from when I was a kid. And yeah, thanks for starting it. Thanks for leading me down that path. Well, I was following my nose. <laughs> I wanted direction in my life, and I, I think you really are affirming the, what I, my intuition was: food. We make it. To cho- we make choices every single day, multiple times a day, and those choices ripple out more than just about any other choices that we make. You know, every day, and I think it's just such a powerful feeling to take control of those and know that those ripples we're making every day are positive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I often remind people, hey, when you choose organic, it's not just your body that you're helping, but the farmers, 44% of farmers are poisoned by pesticides every year. So think about what you're doing for them by encouraging organic farming and all the little creatures who aren't getting killed and the insects are aren't becoming extinct. <laughs> so it's just endless possibility for feeling good about your choices. And then you feel better too. At least I did. Yeah. And the food is so delicious. It's so much yeah. more delicious yeah. than the processed. And I wonder, there's a process that I feel the process for me was, and I wonder if it was the same for you. And if so, if you could walk us through the transition that I think a lot of us, you start, it, it start simply wanting to eat healthier and, and pay more attention to food. And then there's a there's an underlying industrial system that has taken root in this country world. And it's almost impossible to not start looking at it and then start seeing the political processes underneath that. And then starting realizing this is not in our best interest. This is, it's not healthy. There's so much unhealthiness in it. There's so much interests that are not, that are opposed to us. And then you start, I feel like it's almost inevitable that we lead to leading others toward revamping, at least questioning and reforming that system, mm-hmm. which leads to politics and it leads to leading others. Is that, was that your process? Is, is that? I came through this door that I was pretty lost. <laughs> I had started out in the war on poverty in 1967. And I was an organizer paid by the city of Philadelphia as part of the War on Poverty and Great Society. But I was paid by the public to go door to door to organize welfare recipients who could be part of a program for owning their homes that was going to be helped to get them out from under the slumlords. And I was going to share that possibility with them going door to door. And so I did that. <laughs> it was I bonded so deeply with the women that I talked to and got to know very well. And 
one of the women that I worked most closely with, maybe I was closest to Lily of them all, and suddenly she died of a heart attack. And I believe that she died of poverty, ultimately. And I didn't know how I was really addressing the roots of her death. And so that led me, ultimately, this very uncertain of my pathway, it led me to life in then at UC Berkeley, where my husband then was a postdoc. And I, he knew what he was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. And I wanted to know. And so we were being told that the whole atmosphere, the intellectual atmosphere was, we're running out of everything. We're overrunning the Earth's capacity scarcity. I now call it the scarcity scare. And so I said, oh, wow, you mean there's not enough food? And is that really true? And I thought, oh, there's a question. There's a really big question. I'm going to find out this really true. And so I went to the UC Berkeley Ag Library with my dad's slide rule, if any of you listeners know what that is. And I literally put the numbers together and realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> there's more than enough food for all of us. And in addition, there's more than enough now, but we're also vastly shrinking its capacity by feeding so much to livestock. Now, you said I grew up, you mentioned that I was born in Pendleton, Oregon. But I grew up in Cowtown, <laughs> Fort Worth, Texas. So I would have been the last candidate to question a grain-fed meat and a diet, you would think. But I realized that uh, I have the figures now to, to share that we devote more than 80% of all of our agricultural land to livestock that return to us only 18% of our calories. So I saw this vast waste, and I wanted to shout to the world. So I made a one-page handout. And then it grew. <laughs> it reminds me of, I've just been recently reading more and more about indigenous cultures in various places. And I, I saw this video about the Hadza in Tanzania. And mm-hmm. there was this tragic image that showed like, sorry to the listeners, they can't see this, but I'm holding my hands far apart. And it shows like, this was a territory in 1940. And I'm moving my hands closer together. And this was it in like 1990. And then in 2000, my hands are very a small circle and 2010, like a very, even tinier space, very tiny space. And I did a blog post on this asking if we're so wealthy, why are we taking their land? Right. Yes. Yes. It's, I think this problem that you just identified land grabs that now are a major issue in our world today, because there's always a way. A lot of this land is held communally, so you can't go and fight it with a land deed in a lot of countries. And that makes it very easy for the wealthy forces from the north to come in and, and take over. And that is a major problem today. Although, as I point out in the 50th anniversary edition of Diet for Solar Planet, there are powerful social movements, very cooperative, democratic social movements in every part of the world who are resisting that and turning it in the other direction. So I just want to underscore that there is a lot of courageous action on behalf of the earth and the poorest people by the people themselves. And this is growing very fast. I'm I'm going to jump ahead 45 years now (laughs) to your your latest book. And partly because what you mentioned at Berkeley, there was something, a lot of the book talks about the tactics and strategies of people suppressing votes, things like that. Mm-hmm. And But before that, you talk about the frames, mm-hmm. the frames of people 
what's driving them? And mm-hmm. you talked about Milton Friedman and you talked about Lewis Powell. Mm-hmm. And I've long wondered, and you taught, you debated, you met Milton Friedman. And yes. <laughs> something that's been bothering me is what drove, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but maybe you do, is what's driving them? Did you ever get a sense of where Milton Friedman came up with the ideas, not where he came up with them, but what drove him or Powell? Yeah. I, I, and maybe we were sharing a bit. Of, I, I'll take for granted that the listeners know who Milton Friedman is and Lewis Powell, but it's not. Read the book. Yeah, economist too. Definitely. I, I, by the way, he was assigned in my college class in, in undergrad. So I was very familiar with Milton Friedman's philosophy of the free market will solve it all. But I, I think your question is so important because what I learned, the question I went to ultimately from my first discovery is I said, why would such a bright species, we're supposed to be the brightest, why would we actually shrink our food supply? <laughs> right? And now today I say, why would we create a food supply, which is a great harm to our health? We're the first species to be killing itself by feeding itself. And ultimately, I came to believe that it's our big brains, that we see the world not as it is, but as we are, as I sometimes put it, we see life through culturally determined frames, that it was that scarcity scare. Paul Ehrlich at Stanford, very brilliant man, he painted this picture of scarcity and really believed it. And it was the frame that that he was assuming somehow, and then it caught on that there's not enough, there's not enough. So we're very vulnerable to that. We're very vulnerable to, you hear the expression, seeing is believing, and I flipped that around now to say believing is seeing. Mm-hmm. It is how we believe that allows us to see or not see. And I tell a really homey story about that in a lot of my speeches, where one Thanksgiving morning I r- rushed down to the kitchen to make my root vegetable dish, and I went looking for this big red pot, and I couldn't find it. And I was really angry. I thought maybe somebody borrowed it and didn't tell me. So I started chopping vegetables. And, you know, 15 minutes later, I turn around. There it is. But it had a plant in it. And I was looking for a cooking pot. And so my eyes caught the plant. And I said, of course, I'd, my, subconsciously, of course, I don't put plants in the oven. So <laughs> it's not what I'm looking for. And I think people get it. Now that I have a slide of the big red pot. That was so obvious, but I couldn't see it because I was looking with a different frame. And I think that's a lot of the human problem is this framing that blocks us from answers. It makes me think of another guest on this podcast. Oh, now I'm really embarrassed because her her name is Black. Anyway, she talks about leadership is pointing out what's in front of people, but but that they don't see. Oh, there you go. There you go. It was just really hard to do. And oftentimes people don't want to see it. And I, th- I really think that is fundamental to everything I do now. And I think telling stories is one way to help people move and crack through the, the lenses, telling real stories of real people that they can identify with. And then their frame begins to reshape and more, become more open and experience trying new <laughs> foods, for example. I think that also begins to, because you said, Joshua, you said that you thought you would die without meat. Yeah. And that I grew up in Cowtown, where, of course, it was hamburger or meatloaf every night. And when I wrote Diet, people said, oh, 
you brought peace in my family because my family thought I was going to die <laughs> if I didn't meet me. Because I realized that was just, again, the frame. And that, in fact, most things we eat have some protein and that we eat a wide range. And now we know that we don't even have to worry about so-called complementary protein, which was the big thing when I wrote the first edition of Diet. And it's very easy. And by the way, Americans eat twice the proteins that our bodies can use. So it just gets wasted, sort of wasted as energy, not as protein. Going back to these, the frames of Milton Friedman and Lewis Powell, at the end of the book, I was wondering the whole time, I wonder if I'm going to get to hear from her where their frames came from. At the end, you, you said, I think Powell was, if he was, if we didn't, you described it as a failure of imagination. If we didn't have a free market, and I'm, I'm putting it in quotes too, then we would, I forget the words, like descend into socialism, or it would be an autocracy of the left or the right. And was it, I'm and, picturing fear of running out or. Yes. And Lewis Powell, who by all reports was a very kind gentleman. And when I read the way he, the Powell memo now has become just a very famous document and you can find it online, Powell memo, but the chamber of commerce hired him because they were feeling so threatened after the social movements of the sixties, there had been you know, big progress on women's rights, uh, civil rights of all kinds. And there had also been a big demonstration in Washington where I understand that Congress people had to row across the, the valley yeah. <laughs> to get to their offices. And the business class was really feeling under attack. And he was a very, they were feeling very threatened. And if you read that memo, it's, there's this real feeling of fear on his part that they are there. I think he says that business people are the most, you know, underappreciated or undervalued, something like that, right? That really feeling that they were losing status big time and they had to make a concerted effort to get this true worldview out. And they, and he goes through media schools from grade school to grad school. You know, they talk about checking textbooks and just making sure that Americans believe that business and free enterprise system is the term that he uses are healthy and protected and strong. So it was, they were scared. Yeah, they were really scared by the, this ethic of and this movement of people's voices beyond just their dollar <laughs> power, but their voices, which we should all have in a democracy. So now I have to read the Powell doc document because one of the things I've lately found, I want to understand the people I disagree with and know where they're coming from. And that's good. As a, yeah, it's come from this podcast and from some of the guests and of not trying to win necessarily, but to start with understanding, start with where they are. And I mm -hmm. really couldn't get, like, I, I've grown up thinking shareholder primacy. And I never really questioned where it came from. And then when I question where it came from, I see it, 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 it's not a law, natural law of the universe. It's, mm -hmm. it was an opinion and there's other opinions out there, but where the opinion came from, I can't really, I want to learn where it came from so I can talk to people on their terms and understand. Mm -hmm. And now it's also the late sixties. Then the, I would guess also the cold war would factor in. And I know the more I learned about the green revolution, the more the cold war was driving like really got that going. So did the Cold War factor in as well? 
Probably. I, in the 50s, I, growing up in Texas, I had very progressive and very courageous parents who integrated our church when this whole city was segregated and our church was targeted by the McCarthy era and that fear of the Red Scare and somehow communists were infiltrating. And somehow I feel a little similar thing going on today. But I think that Again, it's the worldview, and we are so vulnerable to fear-driven messaging, to othering, and this is one of the key things that will go my life. Well, Joshua, could I explain a little bit that yeah. our social nature has the double edge that anthropologists and psychologists, all who have studied us, show the incredible, deep, cooperative capacities and, and how we get joy from cooperation. In fact, they've done studies when we cooperate instead of compete, that we trigger sections of our brains are stimulated that are like eating chocolate. They're so much fun. So we are very cooperative. On the other hand, we are also social creatures who have to feel like we're in the pack with the tribe. And that means othering. That means finding somebody different and saying they're wrong and we're right. So there's this wonderful cooperative aspect, but then uh, that need to to be part and be close and connected and cooperate, it can get into a tribal othering downside. And I think that's what we see over and over again. And maybe one of the worst cases, of course, was Nazism. But I certainly see it in our culture today that if you don't agree, it's not just that you don't agree, but you're a bad person. And that you're, instead of immigrants bringing what immigrants have always brought to our country, they're bad people. They're the, what uh, Trump called them, which I won't repeat. But so I think there's the, there's such an important thing there for human beings to understand that our best traits can also be used against us. Our need for connection with others can be used against us and to be really aware of that tendency and to resist it. That seemed to be something that your book was balancing. If I, as I read it, that you want more democracy. And I don't think I'm reading in too much that there's one party that you would tend to vote for more in this country than the other party. And so on the one hand, you want more democracy. It looked like you're trying to balance promoting democracy in general, and but not necessarily promoting one party, but still favoring one party. Did, was that a difficult balance? That I don't remember that that was our biggest struggle with that book. No, I mean, I think that the facts are even more clear today that the Democratic Party, yes, is more eager for democracy reforms, giving more and more people voice. And the Republican Party is very frightened by that, as we've seen now with the resistance to voting rights legislation and the willingness to both parties have gerrymandered, in other words, set district lines in ways that are partisan for their benefit. But the Republican have done it much more thoroughly and systematically. I'm not at all reluctant to criticize the Democratic Party, but I do think our, the Democratic Party has a stronger record, especially today, on defending the core of democracy, which is equal voice as much as possible and standing up, at least in the past, to monopoly power which then translates into political power, inevitably, is concentration of power. I mean, that, I think, a good argument can be made, that the Republican willingness to accept a market that concentrates and concentrates wealth and moving, pulling back from 
policies that keep wealth distributed, then that concentrated wealth infuses and infects and distorts the political process. And that's, I think, pretty clearly an association between extreme economic inequality and the undercutting of democracy. Do you mind if I explore that a bit more with you? Because you, the book goes out at length. And we talked about the frames that came from these two that I talked about. And then the frames get acted on by DeVos and Coach, Coke and Oren, or Olin. And Shaveman, yeah. And, but I, I want to talk about the Cokes for a moment because it's so apropos of what we've just been through, I think, also with Trump. But having read that book, we rely a lot on the excellent scholarship of Jane Mayer. She's a writer uh, from the New Yorker. And Jane wrote the book Dark Money. And Adam, Adam Eichen and I use that. And she, she talks a lot about the upbringing of the Cokes and how they were really, in an, there are many abusive elements to their childhood. And I, my hunch is that for all people who are, I think now we know that Donald Trump also had a very traumatic childhood. And my hunch is that a lot of people who end up being very power hungry, for want of a better word, and achieving a great deal of power at the expense of others in ways that we wouldn't think were necessarily fair, are perhaps making up, I'm not a psychologist, but it seems a very workable theory that they are making up for the harms from their childhood of feeling so disrespected and disempowered. So I think there's also that element of it that dovetails that need, that psychological need that dovetails for a justification for why it's fine to have just a few companies involved with a given market or why it's fine to have you know, the wealth rushing to the top. In my generation, born in the 40s, every income group doubled its real family income. And my children born in the early 70s, after that, the wealth started rushing to the top. And so what changed? And what changed, I think, is the rise of this very different philosophy that the and the Pound Memo came out then in 1971. <laughs> and the best thing to do is just let, as if the market were a fair process that rewarded hard work instead of a one that rewards wealth to wealth to wealth to wealth until we come. We're now more unequal in, in wealth and income than, than over a hundred countries in the world. What you say is fascinating. And now I have to read Dark Money because it always struck me, speaking to Donald Trump, it was hard not to look at him and, and think something seems very insecure about this person. Mm -hmm. And Curiously, there's a lot of people, I've certainly met Trump supporters, who are fascinated by him and just love him. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've been unable to understand. But the what you're saying about the, the Cokes, I don't know their history, but something of difficulties growing up, leading them mm -hmm. to have possibly also insecurities or some protective element. I certainly behave certain ways for things that I want to protect about my childhood that were difficult. And you know, I wonder if that connects with a lot of people who felt, who feel similarly slighted or wronged or, or something like that that might speak to them. Yeah, I wrote a piece just recently called Polarization, Symptom or Cause, and I hypothesize that a lot of what we call polarization, as if it is somehow thought out 
different worldviews about <laughs> government, etc., that it really arises out of the extreme inequalities that our economy creates, that creates a sense of shame and blame. Because if you really believe that our economy is fair and you're not doing well, there has to be a sense of, what did I do wrong? And a sense of shame that, that I'm not a college grad with an executive position and I'm just barely making ends meet. It's a huge percent of Americans now are just going paycheck to paycheck. And so I, I just hypothesize, I don't know how to prove this, but that the response to finger pointing to others and a love affair with Donald Trump is that that Trump is expressing that kind of outrage and anger and, and just being kind of nasty. That if you were feeling down and out, you know, it might channel some of that and the anger at, and you don't really know if, because the culture tells us that we get what we deserve, right? You know, if you work hard, you get what you deserve. Then how do I understand it if I'm not really the success that I think I should be? So I think there's just a lot of distress uh, in this crash between the worldview that our country is supposed to represent and actually what people are living day to day. Yeah, yeah, I think you were describing how it would feel to people who are voting for Trump, say. I think it would also say that if I'm a if I'm a Coke or a DeVos, I'm rich. I must have worked very hard for this. Yeah. And sure. And then, of course, the Coke brothers. In the book, Adam and I uh, use the research of Theta Scutchpole at Harvard, who says that the network, uh, the Tea Party network and the broader Coke network, rivals the scale of the Republican Party. It's become so pervasive. So that was a few years ago at a read an update, but I think most people don't appreciate that either, how that influences. It's not just, you know, what we get from Fox News, but there is really a network out there that has spread this worldview. So if it's, I know you're not a psychologist and maybe this is uh, speculating, asking you to speculate too far, but how would Coke or one of, how would they look at the you or the democracy mm -hmm. movement that you describe? That probably that we're advocates for the losers by definition and that we're ideologues who want government to take over everything. And that's why I wish we could ban the use of the term socialism in this country because it has a lot of people mean something very democratic by it and others mean assume that it's the big state doing everything for us. And I think they'd probably see me as one of the latter of I just want government to take over. And when I really want government to set the rules that are fair so that we all have a chance. So I'm very attuned to language, as you probably know. And one of the other words I like to get rid of is regulation. That that sounds so like you want to sort of tighten up when you hear, oh, they're regulating me. But I think we all like standards. And what I stand for, and I think the democracy movement, is that we have to have standards, whether it's to save us from poisonous foods or to have standards that we enforce so that people are organized for a voice in the labor market, in, in, in the labor movement. I mean, that every society has to have standards that are enforced so that we can all work together and be protected for in order to live healthy lives. And so I think he would, if he could name me, he would name me as a big government socialist, probably, and not at all what um, 
because that to me is, you know, I'm saying in a sense to him or to them that they are about concentrated power. That's what they end up with is tightly concentrated power. And, and then he would accuse me of tightly concentrated public power, something like that. So would he consider you a stooge or not aware of where I, I would think that he's thinking if you concentrate too much power in government, it's a quick descent into totalitarianism. And I would guess he's, they're thinking something like, you don't even realize it. You're playing with fire and you, and, and you don't get it. And I'm actually trying to protect you. But I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I haven't asked them. Oh, I'm sure that is the ideology that if you, if a government takes on too many roles and it will become the ogre and deny freedoms. And yet we now can look at other industrial countries that have the Scandinavians, of course, Australia, New Zealand, and on, but that have <laughs> a, a strong role for government in terms of keeping money out of politics, for example, or taking on the environmental question and, and also protect people's rights to vote and to that they have a higher voter turnout than we do. They keep money much more out of the political system than ours. So I think we have plenty of proof that you can have an active and powerful government that is accountable to the people. It's unaccountable power that we should fear. So we want our government to work for us, and we can make sure that is happening. So I think we have a lot of evidence that <laughs> you don't have to have a government that that is ours and is the type that we have where that allows so much private power to infect and infuse and corrupt the system. And we need government to make sure that private power is kept out of private concentrated power is kept out of control and we citizens have voice that's really the theme song. So it's the opposite of totalitarian. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a thing that I say a lot that I have a background in science. And one of the things about science is if you have a theory, it may sound really nice, but if it makes a prediction and nature does something different, nature is right, the theory is wrong. And one of the digs I make at economists is that when they predict something and nature does something different, they think nature is wrong and the theory (laughs) is wrong. So when I see, so I look at Europe and I, I see democracies working I'd like us to move more in that direction. And I could listen to their theories and think, well, it could make sense. But what actually happens is something different. And that it seems to me, let go of a theory that is that predicts something that doesn't happen. Exactly. We have a lot of evidence now that those countries that rate higher than we do, which is 50 or 60, depending on who you're looking at, in terms of democracy, that people are typically happier in these countries too. And I vote for happier. Longevity. And healthier. Oh my gosh. This is what is so tragic. We pay so much more for our healthcare per person than than other comparable countries. And yet our outcomes, we have a much higher infant infant death rate and just on and on. There's a lot of evidence that most people do not know because of this idea that we're the best, we're the best. And I know that can feel good, but it doesn't feel good if it's keeping us from actually being happier and healthier. Yeah, we can be best and humble too. Yes, and know that we can learn from one another and 
And that's the key. All about lessons, not models. That was one of our slogans back at my first organization. Joe Collins and I founded the Institute for Food and Development Policy. And we said, we're looking for lessons, not models. And that meant something very much, very important to us. That, And that's what I'm still doing today, <laughs> 50 years later or so, just looking for what lessons can we learn. Never with the idea that, oh, yeah, we could just adopt wholesale something from another country. But, boy, it would be pretty silly not to look for the lessons. Can you expand on that? Because I, one of the things I, I'm trying to do with this podcast is to bring people role models. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of maybe I should bring lessons as well. Well, role model is not – I meant the whole model of a, a complete system. A role model, I, I think of as a lesson that where countries have a higher voter turnout – Hey, there's lessons there for us. What are they doing differently? Yeah, a lot more to have mail-in voting. <laughs> and, of course, we here have been told, oh, that could mean fraud. I looked into the fraud, if I can just take a moment on that scare tactic, because with my partner, Richard Groh, we looked into the data that the Heritage Foundation supplies to scare the heck out of people about voter fraud. We actually went into their database, and <laughs> it's, it's and a scary number on the website. And then if you look at it, it goes back decades and it's all of the country down to local, very minor races. So there are thousands of those. So the number of actual cases of fraud that have been proven are just minuscule, just one or two here or there, you know, nothing that would ever change the outcome. And I wrote to the Heritage Foundation and I said, hey, do you think maybe <laughs> you could? And of course they didn't respond. And the, um, Brennan Center for Justice has also done a similar kind of analysis. So, but I'm just saying that we're, that we, we don't have the most basic, simple things like mail-in voting that can get more people able to vote because of these scare messages that are, are promoted on our privately held, profit-centered media that scare the bejeebies out of us. And so we think, oh, that's going to create fraud. I was smiling while you were saying that partly because I remembered a number in your book. And so I searched for 0000, <laughs> and I found the quote, the most comprehensive study, oh, this is from the Justice Department in 2006, confirmed a voter fraud rate of 0.000013%. It was easy to find because all I could do is search for a lot of zeros. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and people just... They see that big number. And then, oh, the other thing, the Heritage Just, it puts the word sampling on top of it. So if you challenge it, I guess they could say, this is just a sampling. <laughs> but of course, they're sc scouring for proven voter fraud everywhere, but they still put that word on it. So I don't know if that's a tactical or what that's about, but they wouldn't talk to me, so I don't know. Now, going back to... Western Europe, you also mentioned a name that I confess that I hadn't heard of. And it was a Nobel Prize winning economist, I guess, named, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Gunnar Myrtle. And I thought, oh, I should look this person up. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to talk to you. I can ask you. Can you, do you know much about his work? Well, he was very important right at, at the time that I was writing that for Small Planet. And, and I hadn't thought about him until you, <laughs> you asked me before the interview where it came through with that name. And he had a very powerful influence because he he wrote this book about the Negro problem, right, in America, and really awakened a lot of people to to make change. And he was quite a quite an influence. And 
It's funny how people like how he's been lost even to me <laughs> that, that I mentioned his name, but I still hadn't hadn't really spent the time to appreciate what he offered and offered us a more positive way of looking at instead of this scarcity scary, they get something that I can't have it, but really offered us a worldview of possibility of that there is enough for us all. And so I, yeah, he was a definite a force when I was a young person in my 20s. Yeah. Okay. So someone more for me to look up maybe after dark. Yeah. We need to revise this, revive his reputation in that way. Also, what you talked about the scarcity reminds me of Amartya Sen, who I presume the name <laughs> and talked about scarcity or being a product of our. That's another. Going back to the San Bushman and the the Hadza and others, all, I presume Robin Kimmerer and Brady Sweetgrass and these hunter gatherer communities, they, they don't take more than they need. And something hit me recently, and I just did a blog post on this, is that. It's a common refrain that says we store fat on our bodies because our ancestors never knew where the next meal might come from. And the more I think about it, and I'm not an anthropologist, so I, I don't have data to back this up, but we lived for 300,000 years as human, as homo sapiens that way. We could not have been on the verge of starvation for 300,000 years. And when right. you look at the people who live like that today, they have greater signs of health and greater variety in their diets. And when there's a when there's a famine nearby in the agricultural areas, they just switch from what they eat in the moist times to what they eat in the dry times. That mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this food scarcity is that's more seems more a product of our system, not a product of absolutely living outside of agriculture. Yes, yes, we have created this experience of scarcity out of plenty and. One of the books that most influenced my life in the last three years is Sarah, is Sarah Blaffer Hurdy's book, Mothers and Others, talking about how people lived in hunter-gathering times and how the sharing went on. And to the level that, that women, that a baby was nursed by a dozen or more women throughout the day, it was always held by someone. And so we had much more secure psyches because somebody was always holding us and that and I learned from other anthropologists that, yes, when the hunter went out to make the kill, that hunter's family shared it with the whole tribe. It wasn't just the hunter's family. ate; Everybody had some meat. Then. So there was a definite assumption that we were better together. And if we were all healthy and strong, we would all be healthy and stronger. I mean, that and I just love that that breakthrough on her part in her book, Mothers and Others, about even to the caring of infants, that was a shared activity, creating a lot of security in the psyches of those folks living in that way. Yeah. And the follow-up from what, if we're so wealthy, why are we taking their land is we, we send people in there to teach them. We should be learning from them. Exactly. Because they, a, a lot of, um, cases of land grabs in the global south of people who have lived communally and don't even have the deed show that they need to protect that land or make a complaint and that way of life that got us to where we are is that and i don't think i'm romanticizing our early days because it was just so obvious that we needed each other to thrive in order for ourselves to thrive you know we needed the whole tribe to thrive and as i was saying before that 
that there's a lot of evidence that cooperation makes us happier <laughs> and that power over, you've probably seen these studies where if a person gains a power status, that they can look at their brains and see how empathy goes down. <laughs> so that's a warning to all who want to live happily with our neighbors that, yeah, we never saw those studies when we were back in the early days, but we intuit, we saw it happen when people got gained too much power and we learn ways and the same anthropologist, Sarah Blacker Herdy, described how we used ridicule, <laughs> we used, and ultimately we would banish someone who was just too power hungry. And so we had strategies for keeping a cooperative society intact. And then my theory is, as I said, our big brains had developed these ideas that allowed us to accept this kind of hierarchy and extreme concentration of resources as something that somebody earned and it's a free market after all and we can't touch it. But, it, but it's our ideas that are putting us in this situation, not anything inevitable. Yeah, we've certainly lost the... the. You make me think of... There's a book, Affluence Without Abundance, about the San Bushmen in Southern Africa. And uh -huh. The title says a lot. Affluence, but without abundance. They own stuff, but they're happy. They're And when a hunter comes back with a big kill, funny putting it that way, but comes back with something big, the, the response is, oh, what is that? That's nothing. It's a bunch of bones. Oh, and, yes. That's another way they keep them in their place, right? Yeah. And yeah, the, that's Sarah Hardy says that too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they knew each other, the author of this. And, oh, and really? Yeah. It's H R D Y with no vowel or very few vowels. Yes. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. And there's a question I think sometimes, this may be too broad a question, but especially around July 4th, I think this question, how close are we, say, just in the United States, how close are we to being England in 1776? <laughs> oh, I, I, I can't answer that. I don't think, I, I don't think of myself as a good predictor. I don't, I'm just trying to capture the reality as I'm seeing it change. And this is one great thing about being an elder is that I've lived through these various periods and know that it can be different. And that's what I can count on. I can't predict the future, but I do know that what we are capable of, because I've lived through periods where there was such a sense of common purpose mm -hmm. and, and we didn't fall for this idea that the market solves everything. So I guess I can't answer, okay. <laughs> but I do know that that I would never have, speaking, speaking of prediction, could have predicted the emergence of a Donald Trump that, that somebody with such a, such a, an obvious, needy, and really mean-spirited personality in so many ways could rise in this country. So I couldn't have, I didn't predict that. And it, I'm still absorbing the meaning of it. And I think that we all should be, um, and what I try to focus on, Joshua, is how the democracy movement, which we are, we feel part of at the Small Plant Institute and want to help in every way possible, how we can make that not simply a democracy as a dull duty, <laughs> but as a joyful undertaking aligned and meeting our deepest needs for, for a sense of agency, for connectedness to others, and for a sense of meaning in our lives. And so 
that really is what drives me that I do think that democracy can meet, only democracy can meet done a true democratic culture can meet our deepest needs as human beings and bring out the very best of us while keeping our unsavory capacities in check. I want to, since you talked about things you've lived through, there are a couple of stories that I maybe you could wrap up on. Either you talked about Maine and some successes there in increasing democracy, and North Carolina was a bit longer. I wonder if you could share a bit about Maine, because I was really interested in that one. Yeah, I, I, and even now, what has come out, Maine has been a leader in clean elections, of actually having public elections, so that publicly funded elections, so that I had the joy of getting to know a woman who was a waitress in a small uh, diner, in Maine in the year 2000, and when they began the public financing so that a candidate could run and get, and if they got a certain number of small donors, they would qualify for additional funds from the state. And her friends saw a lot of leadership in her, and they said, Deb, why don't you run for office? And she said, what, are you crazy? I don't have money. And they said, Deb, you're not paying attention. You can get, all you need to do is get 50 people to give you $50. And she said, what? I'm a waitress. I can do that. <laughs> and she did. And she became a, an outstanding legislator. And she was put ahead of very serious committees and, and got reelected and Deb Simpson, her name, and, and then dark money came in. And I'm still not sure how to keep out this dark money so that she was defeated in the end by a racist attack because she had an inter interracial child. And it was nasty, and it was a tragic story. But on the positive side, because of this public funding, I got to know another young woman, Chloe Maxman, who had run um, a big campaign at Harvard when she was a student on getting money out of politics, and then she went back home to Maine because she wanted to live in her small town. How can I live in my small town? Oh, I can run for office. <laughs> and she did. And in one of the most conservative districts in Maine, and she ran on a Green New Deal program, and I talked to her and just came to adore her. And I, I said, Chloe, how did you do this in this conservative? She said, I talked to people. I went door to door and talked to people. And she described how she went down this path that, to a tra trailer home. And the gentleman who opened the door said not one candidate for anything had ever come to his door. And she's passed important legislation for green energy as well and got support of the labor movement behind her and other things that I consider very important legislation. I think there's such proof that if we get money out of the central role, get private money out of the central role and allow people like Deb Simpson and Chloe Maximin to run, that some really good things can happen. And out of, I remember when I wrote an earlier book that I talked about how Deb and they, had, because of clean elections, they would have been able to pass legislation that kept a lot of electronic garbage, you know, out of the waste stream. Mm -hmm. And it was has been really important for the environment of Maine. That's another product of private interest, public interest driven, not private interest driven, campaign and legislators who are listening to the needs of the people and the land. Yeah, I have to say that there were several times in the book where I was, I would find myself drifting off thinking to myself, what if I did run? Because it cited some statistics of 
it more people run and you get more democracy more and because i've gotten to know especially doing this podcast i've known people who've run around here uh-huh. and they're regular people <laughs> i could do it yeah. too and yeah you could i think you'd be great <laughs> do I, yeah i was gonna say do i have your vote but different district and now you see i i, I could maybe i will <laughs> yeah, the idea of public finance. Oh, yeah, you were, you mentioned how I think Ronald Reagan was heavily funded to win against his in the primaries through that, and I think Carter was as well. And Carter got Carter was significantly used public financing. I, I think he was the last, and somebody needs to fact check this, but I think he was one of the last to really. It began to fade. That program began to fade very rapidly after that, and yeah. So that's something that we can learn from other countries. I looked at. I did a comparison of how much per person, because that's the only thing that makes sense. You compare Germany to the United States in terms of per capita expenditure for the election, mm-hmm. and it came to. I think it was something like thirty something dollars per person in Germany, and over. $100, like 130 something like that in the U.S. per person. It wasn't even in the same ballpark in terms of the flow of money into the election process. And so they have public financing of parties in Germany, and that's how that public financing works. And then the parties select their candidates. And they also, there's a way that they don't allow the kind of campaign advertising uh, that we do, and they have more real discussions and dialogue and mm-hmm. debates. Yeah, you reminded me of the, of the the one thing that like a jaw-dropping thing was the ranking of North Carolina in terms of democratic practice. And it was the lowest state in the union. And I think they said the lowest, I don't remember who did the ranking, what their, category, what their criteria were, but I think they said it was the lowest governing body that they measured. Wow. I forgot to imagine the book. Yeah. Yeah, no, we rank, depending on what, there are three uh, global bodies that I look to for ranking U.S. democracy relative to others. And we come in, depending on whose numbers, it's the worst we show up is around the 60th in the world. And I think one of them has us closer to 30th, but our 50th. The worst I know is a very respected measuring um entity that we're that low. And I think the Electoral Integrity Project at Harvard, if you look at all their numbers and so I think we come in around 50th or so. Yeah. While you're speaking, I looked it up on, in, in your book and it was the Electoral Integrity Project. Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to read a quote from it. When it comes to the integrity of the voting district boundaries. Okay. Just one aspect. No country has ever received as low a score as the seven out of a hundred North Carolina received. North Carolina yeah. is not only the worst state in the U.S. for unfair districting, but the worst entity in the world ever analyzed by the Electoral Integrity Project. Um, this is uh, not that far from where I live. Yeah, I want to go now and research that and see if what's happened since then. Yeah, wow. That's thank you for reminding me of that. Thank you. You're welcome. Tragically, and I'm going to go back a step and close on the. Re- re- saying again that there were several times reading this that I felt like maybe I could run, maybe I should run. I and love that. That I feeling is, that. is uh, people should read the book. 
Yeah, I love that. This is what Adam and I, we, we really wanted to express in this book, that the joy, what we call the thrill of democracy, the joy of being able to join with others and feel that our voices can be heard. And we ended up walking in the march from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., and sitting in on the Capitol steps for democracy reforms, exactly the same. This was in 2017. It's very similar to what we now have, are working toward in the U.S. today. And just that excitement of being with others from all walks of life who share this commitment to democracy was just uh, one of the happiest times ever for me. And that's what I want all of us to be able to experience. I think that's a great place to close. I'm going to steal this last bit and say thank you again for a lifetime of what began with food and has transformed into the major passion of my life of, of work on sustainability. And funny how I didn't really think about it for 25, 30 years, and then something popped up just in time for your 50th anniversary of Diet for a Small Planet. So thank you. Oh, I'm so glad I had this opportunity. I have enjoyed every second of it. Thank you. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.